0: Our scripture passage this morning is from the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 10, verses 7 through 11. And if you're using your pew Bibles, it's page 969. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ's, Let him remind himself that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters, for they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning. It's good to be worshiping uh, with you all today, and it's always good to be worshiping uh, the Lord every Sunday. Some Sundays, maybe it feels like uh, you need it more than others. And uh, I know this has been a bit of a hard week uh, for us as a church family. And maybe some of you are aware of that. Uh, uh, the Lingles and the Zircles have had uh, some losses, not uh, folks that attend Calvary, but uh, adjacent to Calvary. And it's been, it's been hard. And... Um, we're pressing through in this sermon series, Yet Always Rejoicing, and uh, this is sometimes where we need the yet, you know? We're coming from, taking this verse from Second Corinthians uh, 6, 10, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And uh, sometimes uh, life isn't just only rejoicing, uh, sometimes it's sorrowful too, and uh, so we hang on to the rejoicing in the midst of the sorrow. And I so appreciate that last song. I, I think that song just captures so much of the experience of life. So here we are this morning, continuing on in our sermon series on 2 Corinthians. And if you were with us uh, last week or the past number of weeks, you maybe have a good sense of what where we're at in 2 Corinthians. Chapter 10 is starting a new section of 2 Corinthians, but maybe you've been gone uh, for a bit, or maybe your attendance has been spotty, or maybe this is your first week at Calvary. Uh, no worries, let me just give you a quick summary to get us all on the same page of where we're at. Uh, as we saw last week, Paul's primary concern throughout this section of the letter, this final section, chapter 10 to the end, is to deal with some false teachers that have come into Corinth after Paul left. Paul was the founding pastor of Corinth. He planted the church. After he left, some false teachers came in and began uh, teaching a warped view of the gospel. And these false teachers that Paul refers to as super apostles, uh, they also began speaking disparagingly of Paul as well. And they said that Paul, we talked about this last week, they said that Paul was a weak-kneed vacillator and uh, I had to cancel small group this week because of a conference, and one of my small group guys texted the thread and accused me of being a weak-kneed vacillator. And uh, it was comforting to know that at least he was listening to the sermon, but I will point out, he's not here this morning, so who's the weak need vacillator now, you know? Uh, So in any case, uh, they were saying that Paul couldn't follow through on his promises, that he talked a big game in his letters, but he didn't have any apostolic power to back it up. And Paul's alluded to these false teachers all throughout his letter in 2 Corinthians. He talks about them in 1 Corinthians as well. So this has been a problem for a bit. But it's here in this last section of 2 Corinthians that he tackles this issue directly, and throughout this section, Paul is claiming for himself legitimate apostolic authority. The super apostles are making the same claim. So this whole section is a bit of an apostolic cage match to determine who is truly and really the apostle of Jesus. And central to this contest is how each side understands and uses authority. So that's going to be the focus of our sermon today. Our passage is 7 through 11, chapter 10, uh, verses 7 through 11. We're going to focus in really on just verse 8, and even there, not so much the whole verse, but a single word in the whole verse, the word authority. So this sermon here is, is kind of how it's going to work. I want to, ident- I want to um, define this term authority to get started because uh, it's a little different Uh, the the Greek word that underlies it is a bit different than how we think of the term authority in English. The the English word uh, authority is a translation of the Greek word exousia. Now, those of you who know multiple languages know that translating abstract nouns from one language to another can be tricky because there's not always an exact match between abstract nouns, and that's the case here. So the English word authority and the greek word exousias do not have exactly the same meaning so the first thing i want to do is provide a definition of exousias i'm going to be using uh, i'm not i'm going to be using uh, the greek term exousias throughout the sermon rather than the english term authority because this greek term means something a little bit different than the english term authority so there's three elements to exousia that i want to dial in on then after i've Dial it in on these three elements, then I have three points of application about how Paul uses his apostolic exousias, and how we should be using ours as well. So we're going to start here with three kind of defining uh, points of exousias, and then we're going to look at some applications. Pastor Greg uh, told me after the first service that he he went a little bit long, so we went a little long in the service. Uh, in the first service, and I'm I'm aware that there's kids present, so we're trying to keep it short. So I'm going to cut out all my dramatic pauses uh, here and uh, try to move this thing just expeditiously along, all right? Won't be the same, I know, but uh, we do what we can. (laughs) All right, here's uh, getting our heads around this Greek term exousias, all right? If you want to write stuff down, here are the words to write down. It really has three components to it. It's a capacity given by God to bless or destroy. It's a capacity given by God to bless or destroy. And we find this key term here in chapter 10, verse 8. So look here in our text. Three um, elements of this term excusias. And uh, I'm looking here in my text. Okay, so Paul writes this. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, that's our term exousias, which the Lord gave me for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. So exousias, the first thing to know about it is that it's a capacity. It's a capacity. And this is where the subtle, there's a subtle difference between exousia and the English term authority. To have exousias is not simply to have the right to do something. But it's more about having the power to do something. So our English term authority falls a little short of this word because authority has to do more with the person's right to do something and less to do with the person's power to do something. So for instance, let's say you have two police officers. All right. The first officer is 6'4", 230 pounds, can bench press a bus, and was trained as a Navy SEAL prior to joining the police force. Right. the other officer is 5'2", and a slender 120 pounds. Now, both officers have a badge, and thus they have equal authority under the law, an equal right to tackle you if you are doing something wrong. But, but even though they both have equal amount of authority, they do not have an equal amount of power, which becomes evident when a criminal resists arrest. A criminal would have a much better chance resisting arrest from the smaller officer than he would from the larger officer because even though both officers have the same amount of authority, they are not equal in their actual power. So the English term authority has more to do with right, the right to do something, and less to do with the capacity or the power to do something. But the term exousias is actually the opposite. Exousia has more to do with the power to do something and less to do with the right to do something. So in Matthew 10:1, here's an example that we can see in Scripture. Jesus calls his 12 disciples together. He's going to send them out to preach. And as he sends them out, he gives them, Matthew tells us, exousia over the unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and affliction. Now, when Jesus gave his disciples exousia over the demons, he wasn't just giving them the right to cast out demons. He was giving them the power or the capacity to cast out demons. So it wasn't like the demons had the option of resisting arrest, nor was it like the disciples were saying to the demons, hey, you demon, you better obey me or I'm going to call Jesus over here. You're going to have to deal with him. Like the mother who says, you just wait until your father comes home. It's not like that. When Paul uh, says that he has exousia, he's saying that he doesn't just have an apostolic right to be in charge. He's saying that he has apostolic power to be in charge, which explains, as we saw last week from Acts 13, how he had the capacity to strike a false teacher blind. So Paul has true apostolic exousia. As a general rule... You don't want to mess with someone who has true apostolic exousia. Now, I don't think it likely that you or I have an apostolic exousia sufficient to strike people blind, but all of us have some measure of exousia. If you have a capacity to affect the lives of others for good or for ill, you have exousia. So, if you can give an employee a raise or you can fire them, you have exousia. If you can give your child a piece of candy or a timeout, you have exousia. If you can open a door for a woman or steal her purse, you have exousia. you can cut in front of an elderly person at the grocery store or give up your place in line, you have exousia. The power or the capacity to bless or harm others is exousia. Now, we don't all have the same amount of exousia, but we all have some, right? So as we're moving through, fleshing out the definition of exousia, there's a couple more points to be made there. And as we work towards the application of how we use it, I wanna invite you here at at the beginning here of this sermon to draw to mind, have the Lord draw to your mind, pray and have the Lord bring to your mind, where do you have exousia? Where in your relationships, at work, family, uh, neighborhood, where do you have exousia? Have the Lord brings an area of your life to mind, maybe a particular area that he wants to speak to you about. Keep that situation or that relationship in your mind as we move forward. All right. So exousia is a capacity or a power It's not simply a right. It's not that you should be able to affect change if people would only respect me. Exousia is the capacity to affect change even if people don't respect you. The super apostles certainly did not respect Paul, but it wasn't going to make a difference when he came to town because he has true exousia from Jesus. And he doesn't need their respect to exercise it. It's it's an actual capacity or a power. All right, here's a second element of exousia. Exousia is a given power. It's a given power. Ultimately, all exousia is from the Lord, but in the Greco-Roman mind, that wouldn't have been the case. They weren't always thinking that everything that came into this world came from God, Yahweh, the God of the Jews. But There was an understanding in the Greco-Roman mind that exousia was delegated power or was given power. So look at this second clause here in verse 8. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, our exousia, which the Lord gave, which the Lord gave. One of the distinguishing marks of exousia is that it's given. The power of exousia doesn't originate with the person wielding it. And it's the given nature of exousia that makes it a bit different than the simple understanding of power. So in the Greco-Roman world, when the emperor appointed Pilate, for instance, as the governor of Judea, he also put at Pilate's disposal a certain number of Roman legions. And it was Pilate's capacity to wield the Roman sword through the Roman legions that constituted his exousia. But the capacity to wield the Roman sword through the legions didn't originate from Pilate. It was given to him by Augustus Caesar. And the exousia given by Caesar could also be taken away by Caesar. So while exousia is a real actual power, it's always a given power, a delegated power. And that's why Paul is using the term exousia here rather than simply dunamis, which is the standard Greek word for power. Paul is acknowledging that his apostolic power is exousia. It's a power that comes from the Lord. It doesn't originate from his own natural abilities or his own native resources. And this is true, Paul says, for all exousia. So Paul writes in Romans 13.1, That there is no exousia that exists except that has been given from God. So here's a little Bible fun fact uh, to illustrate this point. I like Bible fun facts. I don't know if you're into Bible fun facts, but here we are all the same. I heard one amen. All right, the word exousia is used 105 times in the New Testament. And who in the New Testament would you imagine has the least amount of of exousia. Who in the New Testament is the word exousia least associated with? You might think, well, it's like the poor or the weak. Well, the, the pagan rulers are said in Scripture to have exousias. The disciples have exousias. The apostles, we've just seen here, Paul's claiming to have exousia. The angelic powers we read in Ephesians and Colossians have exousia. Even the Son and the Spirit are said to have exousias. But the one person who does not have exousias is God the Father, because exousias is a power that has been given or delegated. And the power that God the Father possesses is not given to him by anyone. God the Father is frequently said to be the source or the fount of exousias because all power originates with him and is given by him down into creation. But he is never said to possess exousias except one time in Acts chapter 1-7 where Peter says that the Father acts on his own exousias. The father receives power, but he only receives power from himself. He is the generative and distributive source of all exousias. So exousias is a given capacity. It's given ultimately by God. And Then here's the third part of this definition. Exousias can bring blessing or destruction. So look again at verse 8. Paul says that he has been given exousias for building up the Corinthians, not for destroying them. Now, when Paul says that he has been given exousias for building up and not for destroying, this doesn't mean that exousias can only be used for building up. Think of exousia like a hammer. The point of a hammer is to construct or to build. But sometimes when doing a construction project, you need to use a hammer to pull up nails or to break apart old boards. So the purpose of a hammer is to build up. But the power of the hammer can also be used for tearing down because tearing down is often a necessary part of building up. And it's the same way with exusia. The principal purpose of exousia is for building up, for constructing. It's why the Lord has given it but it can also be used to tear down or destroy if necessary. And a number of times throughout the Corinthian correspondence, Paul says to the Corinthians that he hopes to use his excusia for building up the Corinthians, not for tearing them down. So if you flip over to the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 10, this is a passage we looked at last week, but in 13.10, Paul ends his letter by saying, for this reason I write these things while I'm away from you that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the exousias that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Paul doesn't want to use his exousia to tear down, but he will if he has to. So to summarize, exousia is a capacity given by God For building up or tearing down. All right, now all of us have some, right? We have different levels. We don't all have the same amounts. We have different levels of exousia. So, thinking about the places in your life or the place that the Lord has brought into your mind about where you have exousia, here are three important points of application that we can draw from Paul's example or teachings on exousia. So, here's the first. Don't be proud of your exousia. Whatever exousia you have been given has been given to you by God. Nothing you have is original to you or is, has originated with you. All of your abilities, all of your wealth, your body, your intellect, all of your capacities, they are all exousia a gift given to you by God. And as such, your powers that you possess should not be an occasion of pride or of boasting. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians six ten, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did not receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? I confused my language there. If you received it, why do you boast as though you did not? And when we remember that all excusia is alone from God, it helps to keep us humble. It's one of the great examples of someone who forgot that their excusia was alone from God is Nebuchadnezzar. If you've got your Bible, turn back in your Bible to Daniel chapter 4. In Daniel chapter 4, it's page 741 if you're using the Pew Bible. But in Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar. The great Babylonian king, he's had a dream. He's asked Daniel to interpret it. Daniel has interpreted it, and the dream is ominous. It's saying that Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom is going to fall unless he repents. All right, now we'll pick up in verse 29 of chapter 4. At the end of 12 months, he, Nebuchadnezzar, was walking on the roof of the palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? I mean, I can tell you right now, this is not going to go well, right? We're heading to choppy waters. And while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beast's of the field and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the most high rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom he will immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar and he was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as the eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws and then Nebuchadnezzar comes to his senses in verse 34 and at the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. Nebuchadnezzar comes to an awareness of where, of where Excusia truly comes from. It comes from his dominion, which is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? And at the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and lords sought me out. I was established in my kingdom And still more greatness was added to me. And now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol not my own might and majesty, not my own glory and dominion. I praise and extol the honor and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Nebuchadnezzar had forgotten that his excusia came from God And he had prided himself and lifted himself up and exalted himself. And the great danger, especially for those of us who have higher amounts of exousia, is that they can begin to forget that their exousia has been given them from above and that it's a gift and that it can be taken away at any moment. So as you think about the exousia that you have, are you tempted to be proud of it? I mean, I have a lot to be proud of. How about you? I'm good looking. So there's that. Broad-shouldered, well-dressed, charming personality. Yeah. I kid, I kid. But there's one thing. uh, There's one thing that I am tempted to be proud of, to be self-reliantly proud of, and that's my intellect not how smart I am necessarily, not that I have a mastery of more facts than everybody else, but I value sometimes perhaps too highly my capacity for insight. And if you were around in 2019, uh, you know that I slipped and fell on my head and spent a week in the hospital and then another month in rehab uh, trying to get my brain back to working again. And my doctor told my wife that it wasn't certain that I was going to come all the way back from that. So just a moment, the thing that I value perhaps more of all my gifts and abilities, in just a moment, I almost lost it. And it's the case with all of us that our gifts and our abilities, our wealth, our physical capacities, all of it hangs by a slender thread. And just one slip, it can be taken from you. And when we pride ourselves on our abilities and our capacities that have been given to us, and we think that somehow they originate with us, and that we are the guardians and the keepers of them, and that we can make them flourish on our own, we are deceived. All excusia, all of it comes from God. And here's the thing. If we live long enough, all of our natural excusia will fall away. The whole of life is just one long, slow journey of losing our exousia. And all of us, if we live long enough, will end like we began, in diapers with someone feeding us. And sobering to remember the frailty of our lives Our exousia has been given to us as a gift for a season to be used in service of others. It's not a native capacity by which we can aggrandize ourselves, nor is it meant to be an occasion for pride. So that's the first point of application. Don't be proud of the exousia that you have. It's been given to you as a gift. Here's the second point of application. Don't be ashamed of your exousia. Look again at verse 8. Paul says that even if he is boasting a little too much about his exousia, he will not be ashamed. We live in a world that has a conflicted relationship with exousia. Simply put, we just don't trust it very much. And for understandable reasons. So often we have seen or we have experienced firsthand The misuses of exousia. Governments and politicians have misused their exousia over their citizens. Men have misused their exousia over women. Parents have misused it over children. The rich over the poor. Pastors over their congregants. Ethnic majorities over ethnic minorities. Everywhere that there is a power imbalance, There is great potential and very often a misuse of power. And we've seen exousia misused so often that our natural reflex, particularly, I think, and this is true in the younger generation, our natural reflex when we encounter exousia is to reject it or to neuter it or to somehow try to mitigate it. We don't trust it. We don't trust it in others and we don't even really trust it in ourselves. And I get that, and God gets that, and that's why God sent Jesus into the world, to teach us all how to use our power, and we're gonna get to that in a moment. But here Paul is saying that as a a follower of Jesus, and who is using his exousia in a Jesus-like way, he's not ashamed of it, because he knows how essential his apostolic power is for building up and protecting the Corinthian church. So sure, a neutered power can't do any harm, but it can't do any good either. And in the end, a neutered power actually becomes harmful because it's incapable of doing the good work that it was appointed by God to do. So God didn't send Jesus into the world to abolish power and to wipe it all away. He sent Jesus into the world to teach us how to use power, Humanity, we read in the opening pages of the Bible, Genesis 1 and then 2, humanity was made to be the kings and queens of the world. And we can't be kings and queens without power. But we have to know how to use it. And Jesus has taught us and is teaching us through his sacrificial, his cruciform life and death that the proper use of power is in service of others not in service of self. So as you and I follow the cruciform example of Paul, who is following the cruciform example of Jesus, we're teaching the world about the true and proper use of power. So don't glory in your exousia, but don't be ashamed of it either. And don't be ashamed of the benevolent and God-honoring exousia in others. Because just as God has given exousia to you to be a blessing to others. He's giving exousia to others to be a blessing to you. And when we tear down all exousia as inevitably totalizing and tyrannizing, we are sawing off the very branches that God has given to hold us above the abyss of chaos, and that also teach us what true love looks like. And that leads to our final and most important point of application use your exousia. For love. In verse 8, Paul tells the Corinthians that the Lord has given him his apostolic exousia for building you up, he says, not for tearing you down. Paul knows that he will have to use his exousia against the super apostles. The false teachers are a real problem, and their false gospel is, has the very real danger of leading people to hell. And Paul very much plans to come to Corinth and use his apostolic exousia to tear down the super apostles and their false teaching. He intends to come to Corinth and to exorcise them from the church in Corinth. But he says that tearing down false teaching is not principally what his exousia is for. His apostolic exousia, like all exousia, is for building up, not for tearing down. And he is concerned that when he does come to tear down the false teachers and their teaching, he will have to use his exousia against the Corinthians who have sided with them. He doesn't want to do that. And that's why he's writing this letter. We talked about this last week. He wants the Corinthians to know that he's for them, that he's on their side. The Lord has given him his exousia for building them up, and he wants them to step away from these false teachers, these super apostles, so that the Corinthians are not swept up in the judgment and the condemnation that will fall upon these false teachers. And Paul's use of exousia here is a good reminder about what exousia is principally for. The primary point of exousia, why God has given it to us, is so that we can build others up, not for tearing down. The constructive and destructive aspects of exousia do not sit side by side like equal opposites. So we've all heard the illustration of the carrot and the stick. There's two ways you can get the donkey to move. You can, you can hold a carrot out in front of it or you can hit it with a stick. Right? And we talk sometimes about parenting or about God in the same way, that sometimes we entice with carrots, sometimes we hit with sticks, right? That if God can't get you to move towards obedience with the carrot, then he'll get you to move towards obedience with the stick. And that's not untrue, because God does discipline us at times. He does chastise us at times. But I've realized that for much of my life, I've tended to imagine God just as prone to use the stick as the carrot, as though the stick and the carrot, he's got one in each hand, and he just could use either one, whichever one's going to work, not really preferential. But God always uses the carrot first, and second, and third, and fourth. And he doesn't reach for the stick unless he absolutely has to, and only as a last resort. So when Moses comes to see the Lord upon the mountain, and the Lord reveals his glory to Moses, and the Lord proclaims his name, the Lord speaks his name, the Lord, the Lord, slow to anger, but abounding in loving kindness. It's the same dynamic with exousia. The primary point of exousia is to bless, and only secondarily, as a last resort, to tear down. And even when we do have to use exousia to tear down, we still should be using it in the greater service of love. So we think about biblical social justice. Biblical social justice in its distribution of punishment towards the oppressor is always for the oppressed. It's never just punishment for the sake of mere retribution. It's always punishment for the sake of building up. All right, wrapping up here. I don't know all the places where you have exusia, where you have been given a capacity from God to bless others. Perhaps when I asked you to... Prayerfully, think about where you have exousia, where the Lord wants you to think about your exousia. Perhaps you thought of your family. Perhaps you thought about your work context. Perhaps you thought about your social context. I don't know what the Lord brought to your mind. But wherever you have exousia, don't let it be an occasion of pride. Don't be ashamed of it. And always use it first and foremost in service of love. As I finish, I think it's worth saying that none of what I've said so far really is gospel. Theologians oftentimes make a distinction between law and gospel. Law is what we should do, gospel is the power to do it. And just being told to use your power in a Christ like way won't do you any good if you've not first received the gospel of God's free exousia in Christ. Listen to the words of John 1.12. John writes this about Jesus. He says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the exousia, the power, the capacity to become children of God. We haven't been just given the right to become children of God. We have been given, through the gift of the Holy Spirit, the power, the capacity to become children of God. It's all connected into the golden chain of discipleship that we've talked about through here in 2 Corinthians. The Father, who is the fount of all exousia, grants exousia to the Son, who grants it to the Spirit, who grants it to the apostles, who grants it to the church, so that the church can grant it to the world. And to receive God's exousia in Christ is not merely to receive a proper standing, but to receive a true power, a true capacity to live as the children of God. St. Augustine, I've mentioned this prayer before, but he prays to the Lord, grant what you command and then command what you will. And his prayer is, Lord, you can tell me to do anything, but you have to give me the power to do it. Grant what you command. Give me the capacity. And then you can command anything you want. And God gives us himself in the gospel of Christ so that we can live out the commands of Christ. So as you think about the exousia that God has placed into your life and the natural exousia, right? Receive the supernatural exousia from God. Because you won't be able to use your power in a Christ-like way without receiving Christ-like power in your life. But as you receive the power of Christ in your life, you are given the capacity to become a true child of God. We're going to close out our service by singing a song. We've sung it before. It's called The Ancient of Days, and it celebrates and affirms God's benevolent power in our lives. It worships God as the ultimate source of all exousia. It doesn't use that term. Surprisingly, it does not use that term in the song, but... But that's the heart of it. And so reflect upon the power that God has that he has given to you in Christ as you think about the power that you then extend in sacrificial ways to others. Father, thank you for giving us Christ who is our participation supernaturally in your fountainhead of exousia. We have nothing of our own to bring. We don't even have our own selves to bring. We have nothing except that you have made us something. So God, help us to count all things as from you, as a gift of grace given to us, to not be used for our own aggrandizement or our own sense of self-sufficiency or pride, but to be used as a means of loving others, and leading others into the sacrificial love that you have extended to us in Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen.